1, as we've gone through Isaiah, especially the early chapters, we're skipping stones across a pond, not covering every verse, but concentrating on certain wonderful verses, and then summarizing the other sections. And so we're covering several chapters tonight, chapters 24 to 30. Also to remind you, the recurring theme in Isaiah and the prophets, <clears throat> promises and warnings. And uh, that's the positive and the negative. It's just like to Adam. Adam, wonderful garden, help yourself, but not that one, or you'll be punished. And then Mark 16, he that believes shall be saved, he that does not believe shall be damned, positive and negative. So that's one of the recurring themes in uh, the first half of Isaiah, uh, the promise of blessing and the threat of doom. And actually the key word is the title for tonight's message, desolation. Not just for Israel and Babylon, but even the whole world. And then occasionally there are the promises of blessing for God's people. Okay, chapter 24 <clears throat> It's very explicit here about the desolation. Verse 1, Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste, distorts its surface and scatters abroad its inhabitants. And then verse 3, The land shall be entirely emptied and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. It's kind of like Genesis in reverse. Remember, God created uh, the earth and it was without form and void. It was like a wasteland or like a big lump of formless clay and then God did something. Here it's like well it used to be good but now it's going to be all be laid waste one day. And God's given hints of this in history with various disasters and cataclysms. The greatest one was the flood. And um, then God says there are going to be more and so he talks a little bit here about the land of Israel being laid waste by Babylon. And then later by the Romans. Why? Because of their sin. Here's our first principle for tonight. God uses means to bless and to punish. God used the Babylonians who certainly weren't godly Christians or Jews. And God uses means to punish a people or a person. And this is also predicting the ultimate worldwide desolation. Verse 2, it shall, be, it shall be as with people, so with the priest, and so forth. What he's saying is, <clears throat> not just like elsewhere, like priests, like people, like prophet, like people, we imitate our leaders. But what he's saying is, everybody's going to be decimated in this desolation. Uh, the high and the mighty, the low and the poor, everybody. It's just like in Revelation 20, the ultimate fulfillment of this at the great, great white throne judgment. It says, behold, I saw all people, it says, the great and the small. Just think about that, the, the paupers that died penniless, as well as the wealthiest people, the 500 they talk about, the upper 1%. Everybody will be accountable to God. And part of this, <clears throat> you might say, why? Look at verse 4. Earth mourns and fades away. World languishes and fades away. The haughty people of the earth languish. So on and so forth. Verse 6. Therefore the curses devour the earth. What curse? <clears throat> curse on creation. Adam and Eve sinned and God leveled certain 
curses on them, but said, Adam, because of you, the ground is cursed. How? In the garden before the fall, it was a garden. Beautiful. But God leveled a curse upon creation. It's going to bring forth thorns and thistles. It's not always going to be productive. And uh, in fact, let me show you something in the New Testament you may not be aware of. Turn to Romans 8, which is a favorite chapter of many people. But in the middle of it, it says something profound about this curse. Chapter 8, verse 19. The earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. It's presently under a curse, as it says here, corruption. It's not that the earth itself sins, but it's the effect. Adam and Eve's sin had consequences, and by the way, not just on the soil, but on all creation, including the cosmos, the planets. It even affected the laws of science, entropy. Things left to itself fall into disintegration and corruption. You don't believe me? Just take a watermelon and put it out in your backyard and come back six months. It's going to be rotten. And so the whole universe is like this. There's a verse in the Old Testament that says that because of the sin of Israel... The promised land will vomit you out. That's a pretty earthy term. And so Romans 8 says it's awaiting something when the curse will be removed. And the book of Revelation says, quote, there shall be no more curse. Pop quiz, does anybody know where that's mentioned in a famous Christmas carol? That's right. Joy to the world. For as the curse is found, it will be good for you. Give her uh, a gold star. Then verses 7 to 12, there's a lot of weeping, but it's not for joy uh, in Israel. And again, I see the ultimate fulfillment. They're going to be a lot of weeping at the second coming. Uh, the laughter of lost sinners is going to be turned to weeping. And of course, we know that in hell there's weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth, but in heaven there's laughing. Jesus even said there's dancing in heaven for joy. So again, that's the ultimate fulfillment. Now there's a change of mood. Uh, verse 14, some singing, but Isaiah is not taking part of that. And I was reminded of that verse. It's either in Ezra or Nehemiah. When the Jews came back from exile and they were rebuilding the temple, and when they finished it and dedicated it, uh, there was a mixture of weeping and rejoicing. And he says, I couldn't tell which was which. Have you, have you ever heard someone weeping and it almost sounds like he's laughing? Did you know that in acting school, they teach inexperienced actors, if you can't turn on your tears like certain actors can, like Michael Landon can turn it on in two seconds, uh, but some can't, so they said, here's what you do. You just kind of bend over and cover yourself and laugh, and it's going to sound like you're weeping. And sometimes I've seen someone like at church or some other situation doing like that. I can't tell, are they laughing or are they weeping? So when they rebuilt the temple, there were people rejoicing. And other, the old men were weeping, and it says they were weeping because 
These are old men that remembered the old temple before it was torn down 70 years ago. So there's going to be this release of emotions. Here's Isaiah mourning when everybody else is singing because he sees what's actually going to happen uh, one day. And it's not just for Israel, verse 17, but, the, quote, the earth. And that's not talking about the promised land, but the whole earth will be desolate. You ever seen something like that? Where it's just desolate. Everything, parts of Gaza right now. Have you seen that on the TV? The bombing raids during the Israeli war. Whole neighborhoods, just buildings torn down and nobody staying there. And I remember looking at documentaries about the fall of Nazi Berlin at the end of World War II. Have you seen those pictures? It's just like all the buildings are just either torn down or just a shell and there's rubble. It's desolation. God says it's going to be like that for Israel when the Babylonians came in, but also the whole world will be desolate at the second coming. So keep that in mind, the desolation of the world that's mentioned over and over again in these chapters. Verse 18, there's nowhere to escape. You know, you see the Palestinians running for cover, going to South Gaza or trying to make it to Egypt. They don't want to go back to Israel. They can't stay in Gaza. But this is going to happen at the second coming. People that are lost will see Jesus coming in the clouds of glory. In Revelation 6.16 and 17, says that they will try to run and hide in caves of the earth, underground shelters. They can run, but they can't hide. They'll all be caught. But um, they'd rather be buried alive than face the wrath of Jesus. But there's nowhere to run. 19 and 20, some more cataclysms. You know what the word cataclysm means. It's like a natural disaster, like the flood or raging forest fire. Uh, recently, I watched a um, documentary on television about the great Chicago fire of what was that, 1871. We've all heard about that. And it started, they said the story, the legend was that there was a barn that belonged to Mrs. O'Leary and her cow while she was being milked, kicked over the lantern, it started the fire and it spread and hundreds of people died. And the, the documentary said, no, it was not Mrs. O'Leary's cow that started it. And, uh, but it just decimated large parts of Chicago, just burnt down and the wood buildings all just crumbled, but it later was rebuilt. That's a cataclysm. And then, of course, hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, Massive forest fires, it just lays desolate certain things. God's saying that's going to happen to the whole world one day. Cataclysms. For example, Second Peter <clears throat> chapter 3 says there will be a worldwide flood one day, but not like the worldwide flood of Noah of water, but of fire. Keep that in mind as we look at this. I, I kept thinking of that, looking at that documentary on the Chicago fire. <clears throat> it just burnt and people running uh, for their lives. Second coming, there's going to be worldwide fire and no place to run. People will be on fire. And again, World War II illustration, there was the massive firebombing of Dresden and also, people forget Tokyo. Did you know more people were killed in the firebombing of Tokyo than in the atom bomb on Hiroshima? It was just massive. One day it's going to be worldwide. Why? Verse 21, it's because punishment for sin. It says here the leaders are gathered together. It's like 
in verse 22, gathered together like war criminals or like sheep for the slaughter. And, uh, but the Bible talks about leaders being gathered together. At the end of World War II, the Japanese High Command and the Nazi High Command were gathered together and put on trial. Um, but there are two other unusual turns of phrase on the leaders gathered together. For example, Psalm 2 says, Why do the heathens gather together to oppose the Lord and his Christ? And then the leaders will be gathered together at the Battle of Armageddon to oppose Christ. The world does not want Jesus to return. The leaders say, let's fight against him. But they'll be gathered together for God's war crimes tribunal at the judgment day. And what happens after all this desolation? Verse 23, God will reign. The last man standing. Is, go look up several of the verses that say God is going to laugh at all workers of iniquity. He that laughs last laughs best. The fall of the Third Reich, the German people were weeping everywhere. We thought Hitler was our savior. And they said, well, it's like waking up from a nightmare. But what about the Allies? They were dancing in the streets in England, Scotland, America, South America. They were dancing. So what happens at the second coming? God will be vindicated. His enemies will be punished. And his people will celebrate. We'll share in the joy of victory. Okay, that's summary of chapter 24. Look at chapter 25, one. Uh, chapter 25, verse 1. Here's a prayer. Because remember, he mingles his prayers together with his prophecies. Isaiah says, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things. Your counsels of older faithfulness and truth. He is not just praising God for the blessings Bestowed upon his people, God promises he'll restore them. But he's praising God for punishing the Babylonians and he even looking forward to the great cataclysm at the second coming. How can he praise God for that? Well, that's a difficult pill for some people to swallow, but we see about half a dozen verses in the Bible where when God punishes his enemies, his people praise God. We see that in Revelation 20 which follows the second coming of chapter 19. And it says, The angels and the saints in heaven are praising God. Why? Because God has punished his enemies and their enemies, just like their celebration at the end of World War II. This is a fulfillment of the imprecatory psalms. You know, the imprecatory psalms were where David and others said, Lord, punish your enemies. This is a time when God will punish their enemies, and David prays God in advance, just like Isaiah here. Uh, now, we have to keep that in balance with something else. When God punishes someone we know today that's very evil and he dies, we can say that's the hand of God, but we should rather mourn because we're not in heaven yet. Uh, we would want to dance on their grave and gloat. John Calvin addressed this in his sermons on the book of Micah and said, yes, one day we will rejoice and praise God as he punishes all of his enemies. But he said, we're not in heaven yet. We should mourn when lost sinners die and warn them in advance. Okay, verses two and three, God will vindicate himself and his people will praise his name and his enemies will confess God was right after all. That's the primary purpose of the judgment day. There are three purposes of the ultimate judgment day. It's 
to punish God's enemies that die without repentance, to reward his people and to vindicate them, but ultimately God vindicates himself. Everything will be explained at Judgment Day, so nobody can say, you weren't fair or you sent these disasters. God says, send you disasters because you're guilty, you're sinners, you deserve that. And so God will vindicate himself. Um, uh, and so nobody will be able to accuse him anymore. Here's a precious verse, verse 4. You have been a strength to the poor, for you have been a strength to the poor, to the needy in his distress. Refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat, from the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. So in, in, in light of all this decimation, God protects his people. And God says, this is a principle that applies to us. Seize upon such promises in the Bible when you go through a storm, a disaster, a bad medical report, and to say, God is my strength. I feel in distress. I'm needy. I'm poor. God is a refuge. It says here, refuge from the storm, a shade in the heat, from the blast of the terrible, and so forth. So that's a precious promise in the midst of all this. He's the help of the helpless. There's a precious verse like that in the book of Psalms. He's the helper of the helpless. By the way, the opposite of that is bad theology. What is it? Uh, Logan, could you find that Bible verse for me real quickly where it says, God helps those that help themselves? Hannah, you can help him out if he can't find it. It's not there. God didn't help those that help themselves. He helps those that can't help themselves. He's the helper of the helpless. I was just pulling your leg. Logan, you knew that that's not in the Bible. Do a public opinion poll. A lot of people think it is in the Bible. That God helps those that help themselves and we don't want to take charity from God. We can do it ourselves. No, you can't. God is the helper, as it says here, of all of the people that are just decimated. And then there's also, verse 6, promise of a great celebration one day. Now look at verse 8, because this is referred to in the New Testament. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. He will swallow up death. Anybody know where that's alluded to in the New Testament? 1 Corinthians 15. Death will be swallowed up by life. When? Ultimately, when Jesus comes and gives his people resurrection. And so we face death, but we're on the winning side. We will face life, eternal life, resurrection. Now, in the middle of this, as I said, this is something also alluded to in the New Testament. It's quoted later in the book of Isaiah. Look at the middle clause. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Isn't that a precious promise? Remember that next time you were weeping, such as mourning for sin, loss of a loved one, depression, tragic circumstances, and the tears come flowing like rain. Bring the tears, just like a, a little one. Here we've got some parents sitting at the back there. <laughs> back row Baptists, you've seen those little children weeping. They hurt themselves or they're scared because there's thunder and lightning. And they'll come up, Daddy, Mama, the little tears coming. Those tears touch Mom and Dad's heart. And what do you do? You get on your knees and wipe away the tears and give a hug. That's what God will do. The great Samuel Rutherford, who lived about 400 years ago, said, when we get to heaven, if there are any tears left, God himself will get out a soft cloth and wipe away every tear.
here. That's what it says here, and that's a good quote from, uh, this is quoted in Revelation 21.4. There shall be no more death, no more crying, no more tears, and also says no more pain. But this is a little different than some other places where this promise is given. God wipes away tears of mourning and depression, but also, remember the illustration of parents, when uh, a child has to be spanked, and oh, those little tears will come sometimes. But a wise parent will spank and explain it and then comfort the child afterwards to say, I did this because I loved you and I want to teach you, don't do wrong, don't say those bad words, don't hit your sister with a shoe. And so they, God spanks and God spanks us and it hurts, it's supposed to hurt, but he'll wipe away the tears that are brought about by chastening. Because you notice the context here, he, he'll wipe away tears, the rebuke of his people and so on. So precious promises of God, the uh, celestial tear wiper. Wipes away all tears. And then, verse 9, God will save his people. Now, the word save in you is used in different ways. We tend to think save means saving from sin by believing in Jesus. Well, that's true, but the Bible also saves people from the consequences of their sin or saved from some other disaster. And so it says here, it shall be said in that day, behold, this is our God, we have waited for him, and he will save us. God did save them from the Babylonians eventually. He said, wait, the Babylonians decimated them. Yes, but not all the Jews. Many of them were saved from that. Went back to Israel and rebuilt. I think I got the hiccups, folks. Sorry, bear with me. Okay, the chapter ends, verses 10 to 12. Again, it mentions Mount Zion, like back in verse 6. Mount Zion is that elevated hill upon which Jerusalem is built. And the center of it is where the temple is, and this is the center of Israel. So when it talks about Mount Zion, uh, it's talking about Jerusalem, the center of God's people. That's alluded to on a higher level in uh, Hebrews 12, where it says, we have come to the heavenly Mount Zion. Heaven is sometimes described like a, like a mountain. Okay, now chapter 26. Another song, uh, verse 1. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah, and so forth. You ever done a Bible study on the songs of the Bible? Now, we don't have the music. We do have some musical terms used in the Psalms and some other ones that indicate, is this going to be sung with a harp or a lyre or a flute? Is this a choir? Is this a solo? Is this a sad song? Or is this a happy song? And you have to read between the lines to see these things. It's just like Israel today. There's not a lot of happy singing because there's a war going on. And the Jews have been persecuted for so many centuries. A lot of Jewish music is in a minor key, very sad. And you find that in various parts of the Bible. But other times it's rejoicing. You've seen, you ever seen the Jews sing and they dance with their hands held and they do kind of do this thing in a circle like that and they have a certain Jewish way of singing. Well, we find songs such as Isaiah chapter 26 and uh, in the book of Isaiah, sometimes it's a sad song and other times it's a, it's a happy song of celebration. And the same thing happens for Christians. It, uh, we go through 
rough times and was singing like a dirge, a, a blues, sad song. And you ever felt like that you come to church and you're really sad, you, death of a loved one or you lost your job. And the song leader says, let's sing this happy song. And it's hard to sing that at times. Think about the other way around though sometimes and think about other people. Um, here's a preacher's lesson, Logan. And in every church service, there's going to be people very happy, but there's always going to be someone with a broken heart that you may not know about. And so you have to remember that in your prayer and in the sermon. And God will wipe away tears, and God will comfort his people. So study the songs in the Bible. Uh, now look at verses 3 and 4. I'm sure you've heard these before. You've probably seen them on a little plaque or a poster that you buy at Christian bookshops. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind has stayed on you because he trusts in you. Uh, trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah the Lord is everlasting strength. So notice the key uh, verb, trust in the Lord. Perfect peace. And that's not just talking about peace from enmity, but peace for the heart. When we're in the middle of the storm, I'm, no, I'm not the only one that's been through an emotional storm where you need God's peace. What do you do? You go to God and trust in him in the middle of the storm. And it says, he will keep you in perfect peace like a mother hen gathering little chicks under its wings. And uh, the mind has stayed on you. In other words, that's trusting in God even when you don't understand it. You're going through a storm. Run to God and say, Lord, protect me. Give me your peace. And that's when he'll wipe away the tears. Now, I call your attention to an unusual word in verse 4. For in Yah, the Lord is everlasting strength. Now, it says the Lord, and notice it's all in capital letters, which is the translator's way of saying that's referring to the holy name of God, Yahweh. Sometimes people pronounce it Jehovah, but in Hebrew it's Yahweh. But here it's also shortened like a an abbreviation, Yah. There's only two or three places in the Bible where it's shortened like that on its own, but here it's repeated. Yah is short for Yahweh. It's just like when the first mention of that was to Moses from the burning bush. Moses said, well, who are you? I know you're God. And he said, uh, I am that I am. And in Hebrew, that's a form of saying Yahweh and then he says, now go and tell them I am has sent you. So he says, here's the full name, but let's just shorten it to I am. And Jesus used that of himself. So Yah. And so then the abbreviation Y-A-H is sometimes attached to other words and names in the Hebrew Bible. Like Hallelujah or Jeremiah. And other such things. So now, now you know a little bit of Hebrew. So when you looked at that, you probably wondered, what does it mean? Y-A-H, what's well, it short for Yahweh the Lord? Okay, back to the text here. Verse 5, God will exalt downtrodden people, his people, including Christians, and bring down his enemies and their enemies. Now we've just mentioned the unusual name of God, Yah. Look down at verse 7. The way of the just is uprightness. O most upright. That title is used of God only here in the Bible. And there's some other titles used of God. Do a Bible study. What is the holy name of God? And there are many titles, like he is king of kings, 
and Lord of Lords and so forth. But this is one used only once, and you say, what do you mean upright? It means righteous. O most righteous and just one. And we'll see justice in some of these other verses. Think in terms of when you pray to God, use some different names and titles that are from the Bible. Don't just say God, say Lord, most righteous one, heavenly father. And teach your children the meaning of these different titles and names for God. Point out something else in verses 8 and 9. See if you can catch what I'm getting at. Yes, in the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you. The desire of our soul is for your name and for the remembrance of you. With my soul, I have desired you in the night. Yes, by my spirit within me and so forth. In both the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament, you find uh, two different words for soul and then there's spirit. And some people think, well, Soul and spirit are completely different things. And this is a theory called trichotomy, that we are three. We're body, soul, and spirit. No, the Bible really teaches that we're two, body and soul, which is also the same as spirit, because this verse goes back and forth between soul and spirit, just like in the Magnificat of Mary in Luke chapter 1. Your soul is your spirit. It's the invisible part of you. Your body is the visible, physical part of you. But here he says, with my soul, the desire of our soul, and by my spirit. So that's another word for this is your heart, the deepest part of your invisible being. And we should pray and praise God from that. Verse 9, let grace be shown to the wicked, yet he will not learn righteousness, and so forth. Now, this could be referring to God's showing common grace to the wicked or us showing grace. But the point is, uh, this isn't saving grace. If you show grace to some people that they don't deserve, it doesn't matter to them. In the same way, common grace doesn't save. It's special grace that people need. So when you pray for your friends and enemies, pray that God would not only bless them with good health, but would save them by special grace. Now, God works through means, as we've seen earlier, and we are that means. Look at verse 12. Lord, you will establish peace for us. You have also done all our works in us. Now, that's interesting. You have also done all our works in us and through us. Say, well, that's not right. Uh, God just says, do it yourself. No, God doesn't say do it yourself. Um, it's like a parent, back to the parental illustrations, teaching the little child to walk. You know, you, you parents know what that's like. You hold them up by the hands and you kind of walk them like a puppet because that child can't do it himself. And um, I have a quote from Martin Luther. I forgot where it's from. Probably the bondage of the will. And he said, it, God is sometimes like a parent that gets down on his hands and knees and says, come to daddy, come to mama. And that little child can't even crawl yet. And he said, well, that, why say come if he can't come? And Luther said, because it's to teach us our inability so that we can trust in God. So that little child, you know, I can't, mama, and puts up the hands Mama comes and lifts up the child and teaches the child how to walk. And so God deals with us like this. He does his works through us by showing us we can't do it ourselves and he does it through us. You're probably thinking of Philippians 2.13 where it says work out your own salvation. It says work it out. It doesn't say work for your salvation. Once you've been saved, you put it into practice. It says for God is at work in you 
both to do, uh, to, to will and to do of his good pleasure. God uses means, including us. So let's say, Lord, do your work through me. Now back to the family illustration. You, will, you mothers will recognize the illustration of verses 17 and 18. As a woman with child is in pain and cries out in her pangs, when she draws near the time of her delivery, so we have been in your sight, O oh Lord. We have been with child. We have been in pain and so forth. Where do birth pangs came from? If the world was cursed because of Adam's sin, this is part of the curse laid upon mothers because of Eve's sin. You remember, that was what God said. Said, with labor you will bring forth children. I heard a preacher say, Adam suffers labor out there in the field and she suffers labor when she's delivering babies and not with modern medicine. They can all, all often control that. But you know about birth pangs. They'll start and they'll you know, say, well, let's time it. Well, there's one that's not too bad. And then 10 minutes later, and now it's eight minutes, and now it's four, and they get more intense. It's pointing toward the delivery. And it might take a long time, might be very short. And so as the illustration here, uh, it says, it's like, we're your people. We are feeling this. This is going to go somewhere. And of course, it's like that with the world. You remember that verse in Romans 8? The universe is suffering birth pangs. It's going to get worse and worse until this great desolation at the second coming. And then there'll be a new heavens and a new earth born out of all this curse. It'll be taken away. Verse 19, there's now another great promise of reviving Israel one day. Um, let's look at that verse. Verse 19. Your dead shall live. Together with my dead body they shall rise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust. And so forth. Remember we mentioned earlier how it, this chapter is quoted in 1 Corinthians 15 talking about resurrection. This gives a lie to many liberal theologians that say, uh, yes, resurrection is promised sort of in the New Testament, but not in the Old Testament. They had no concept of the afterlife and certainly not resurrection. They sound like the Sadducees. Sadducees denied that there was a resurrection. Remember, Jesus alluded to that in Matthew 26. But the Bible does say that there will be a physical resurrection even in the Old Testament. Would you be able to point to those verses? Here's one. There's a couple in the book of Job where Job says, In my flesh I shall see God after I die. And then Daniel 12.2 says that those that sleep in the ground will awake, some to reward and some to judgment. And then, of course, there's the interesting chapter in Ezekiel 37, all these bones rising up again. So on one level, this is promising the resurrection of Israel becoming a nation after the exile. And it's like life from the dead. And then that's fulfilled later in Romans 11, which uses that illustration. It says that Israel now is like spiritually dead with very few Christian Jews. But one day, great revival of Jews becoming Christians and says it will be like life from the dead. That's also part of the promise of Ezekiel 37. But on a greater level, there's the promise of physical resurrection for God's people. Now, non-Christians will be raised in cursed, ugly bodies filled with sin, Christians will have living bodies that are beautiful and strong and no effects of sin. But it says here, your dead shall live. I bet that was a great promise that the Jews needed to hear. 
says, together with my dead body, they shall arise and sing, you that dwell in the, in the dust. Remember this poetic language. This is almost like he's singing this promise in a graveyard. You that are dead here, can you hear me? You're going to raise one day. It's all together, let's sing the song. I'm not sure I want to go singing songs like this in a graveyard, but you see the point. Uh, there is a promise that we will live after death if we are Christians. And we remember that when a loved one dies and when we're facing our death. I, I, you know, someone, I'll let you try to guess who it is, has already chosen what's going to be written on her tombstone. It's that verse from a hymn, I will arise and go to Jesus. <laughs> I hope you know where that verses in a, in a great hymn, but on a tombstone. I've visited cemeteries and looked at the verses and sayings on that. You know who wants that? That's your mother, Sally. I will arise and go to Jesus. It's already on there. Well, good thinking. Okay, let's get back to the chapter here. Uh, Old Testament did promise physical resurrection as well as the resurrection of Israel, a spiritual revival. Okay, we come very briefly to chapter 27. In that day the Lord will, with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, that twisted serpent, he will slay the reptile that's in the sea. Who or what is this Leviathan? Leviathan is mentioned in a whole chapter in the book of Job, together with another unusual creature called the behemoth. And the Hebrew scholars... And zoologists have tried to guess, are we talking about an alligator or are we talking about an elephant or a hippopotamus or a big snake? However you identify it, it's compared to a serpent and a reptile. And especially in the book of Job, it says nobody can control it. You can't go fishing with a, a line and a hook and pull it in unless you're one of those special crocodile hunters down in the Everglades. But it's a type of Satan. Satan is called a serpent. He's called a snake, a reptile. That's why people usually don't want to be around snakes. They have snake phobia. But it's because Satan is compared to a serpent, sometimes to a lion and other things. But it says he's a twisted serpent, but here's the promise. God's going to defeat him. The defeat has already been guaranteed at the cross. Remember, oh, remember we mentioned Adam and Eve and the curse? There was a promise, the gospel... Someone descended from Eve will crush the head of the serpent. And here's the serpent here. And so Leviathan, that serpent, will be slain one day. So that's a great promise that we can cling to. Now, interesting something about verse 4 that I need to explain. Here's God speaking and says, fury is not in me. He said, well, I thought that God often says he has fury and wrath and rage and there are many words used in the Bible for the wrath of God, but it says fury is not in me. How can that be? Number one, fury is sometimes used like of a storm that's out of control or like a forest fire that's a fury. Some people have fury that's out of control. They lose their temper. God never loses his temper. He doesn't have that kind of a fury. He has self-controlled wrath against his enemies. But secondly... Fury is not in God in another way. God is angry with lost sinners, 
But that wrath has been satisfied in Jesus Christ. We call, what, what's the word for that, that? Where God's anger is appeased? Propitiation. So in that sense, there's no more fury in God against his people. But there is wrath against his enemies. God's wrath has been satisfied by the Lord Jesus Christ for his people. What are we to do? Verse 5, we're to surrender. Let him take hold of my strength that he may make peace with me. Shall make peace with me. Like come out with your hands up and wave the white flag and surrender. And we are to do that before God. Unless we do, we're going to be punished. Christ made our peace for us. Now something interesting in verse 9 Remember, we're just hitting the high points. Uh, Therefore, by this iniquity of Jacob, by this, the iniquity of Jacob will be covered. Covered. That's another term for um, forgiveness. Because it says in the next phrase, the taking away of his sin. But this is sometimes misunderstood. Uh, There are a number of words in Greek that are taken over into English, far more in Latin taken over into English. Very few Hebrew words are taken over into English. There is one. I'll let you guess what it is. It's the word often translated as cover or covering. In Hebrew, it's kofar. Kofar, cover. So some linguists have said that's where we get the word cover. And the covering for the Jews had to do with the Holy of Holies in the temple, when they covered the Ark of the Covenant with the blood of the sacrifice. And so the term came to mean sacrifice that propitiates God's wrath and he covers our sins with the blood of Christ. And he forgives us everything. It was misunderstood a few hundred years ago by a famous uh, German Reformed Calvinist theologian named Johannes Coxeus, Sure, you've heard of him, I'm sure. Coxeus, and he said, no, in the Old Testament, sins were only covered, not forgiven, until Christ died. Wait a second, look at the verse. The iniquity of Jacob will be covered, and this is all the fruit of taking away his sins. So the Bible uses something like nine different metaphors for forgiveness. Two of them are here. One of them is, your sins are covered, or as we said this morning, they're washed away, or they're taken away. One of the Hebrew words is very earthy. It means to lift up a heavy burden off of something. And that's what God does when he forgives us. He lifts the sins off. So, sorry, Coxeus, God does cover our sins and takes them away and forgives them and washes all of our guilt away. So, Coxeus was wrong. Just wanted to throw that in. Okay, it comes to chapter 28 as we're going very quickly. You'll notice in verses 1, 3, 7, and 8, God is rebuking a certain kind of sinner in Israel, the drunkards. Now, there's an overlap between drunkenness and alcoholism. Alcoholism becomes a medical dependency because of the sin of drunkenness, but not all drunks are alcoholics. They're not all addicted to it yet. But it's all sin, but with alcoholics, it's also a medical condition. And drunk people get drunk to get intoxicated. This rebuke would apply also to drug users. That's the very purpose they do it, is to get intoxicated. But God rebukes them. And the irony we find in this chapter and elsewhere is people want to get drunk and feel high and have a party when they're drunk on wine or alcohol or marijuana. And God says, I'll give you something to get drunk off one day. 
the wine of his wrath will become intoxicated, but not to feel good, but it'll be overwhelming and they can't resist it. There's no alcohol in hell, only the wine of God's wrath. You notice that this song goes back and forth with promises and warnings, joy and doom. And we find that also in the next one, verse 5, he will make peace with me. We will have peace with God. Oh, I'm sorry, back to chapter 28, verse 5. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. God's going to glorify us. Here's an old Puritan term. He's going to beautify us. That's actually in the Bible. When the beautiful righteousness of Christ is imputed to us and sanctification is completed when we get to heaven, sanctification by the Spirit, we will be spiritually beautiful. That's part of our glorification. Now, some of you have probably heard and maybe used verse 10. Precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. There's actually a Christian ministry for Christian women called precept ministry. Anybody ever heard of that? I think it's based in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I knew someone that worked for that. And they will quote this. They said, that's how you study the Bible. God's precept upon precept and a little bit here, a little bit there. Well, that's not really what it's saying Although, that's a good idea. Study the Bible systematically here and over there. But I just thought you'd know where this... Have y'all ever heard this phrase? Precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. It's here and somewhere else in the Bible. Verse 11. With stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to his people. Wait, um, come on, my ear is tingling Someone tell me, where is this mentioned in the New Testament? And I stop looking at the cross-references in your study Bible. It's quoted in 1 Corinthians 14, alluding to speaking in tongues. God sent speaking in tongues on the day of Pentecost, and then later got out of control in, um, in Corinth. And so Paul quoted this as if to say this speaking in tongues is not just for prayer or singing in tongues, but... It's a judgment to his people. And so it says here, with stammering lips of another people, he will speak to his people. And this is fulfilled in that speaking in tongues in the early church that they couldn't understand. They said, well, you, don't, you still don't understand God's judgment. Verse 12, to whom he said, this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. God offers peace and rest for our souls. Didn't Jesus say that? Come to me, all you that labor and every laden, I will give you rest. But most people didn't accept it. Most people today don't. They say, I want our sin, not this spiritual rest. It was like that in Isaiah's day. Verse 15. You have said, we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol. In other words, for Hades, we are in agreement. It's as if they're saying, we're making a covenant with death rather than a covenant with God. And God says, I'm going to annul that one day. What an interesting phrase, a covenant with death. Great messianic prophecy in verse 16. I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation. You notice I keep saying these things are quoted in the New Testament that give us the deeper insight into them. So what is this stone that's a foundation? It says here, precious cornerstone, foundation. Jesus is the stone. First Peter chapter 2 and in the Gospels. And yet... 
It's a stone, as Jesus said, it's God's precious stone, but it's thrown away by the builders. The Jewish leaders did not want Jesus as part of their spiritual foundation. Here's the desolation again. Remember that key word, verse 22? Now therefore do not be mockers. Let your bonds be made strong. I have heard from the Lord of hosts. A destruction or desolation is determined even upon the whole earth. Back to that theme of these chapters. Desolation everywhere. Desolation, decimation, destruction, disaster from God. And in history there have been localized ones. One big one in the flood it's going to be a decimation of fire. It's going to make the fire in Chicago look like you're just striking of a match. Fire everywhere when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Verses 24-28 is basically saying as a farmer has to break up that hard soil as they'll be doing in a few weeks in the farms around us and that he has to grind that wheat in order to make powder to cook bread. So God has to decimate his enemies and decimate the whole world one day. For example, the ultimate fulfillment, the second coming. He decimates the whole world with fire after he's taken his people out. And then what happens? He rebuilds. You know, after a forest fire, trees will begin to grow again. They rebuilt Chicago, 1871. God is going to rebuild his earth after he's punished all of the lost sinners and decimated everything by fire. He's going to rebuild it during the millennium. And the Bible says a new heavens and a new earth. Okay, quickly, two more chapters very quickly. Verse chapter 29, woe to Ariel. Who or what is that? It says it's the city where David dwelt. It's another term for Jerusalem or Zion. I met a preacher once who had a, he was a Jewish Christian and he named his ministry Ariel Ministries. And people say, well, who or what is Ariel? Is that a girl's name? No. By the way, some of the ancient Jews took that and said that's the name of a, a female angel named Ariel. No, that's one of those Jewish myths we're warned to ignore. A Jer Jerusalem will be decimated by Babylon and later by Rome, verses 2 to 6. Verse 8 is a very uh, serious warning. So she'll be even as when a hungry man dreams and looks, he eats. But when he awakes, his soul is still empty. Thirsty man dreams and looks, he drinks. But he awakes and he's faint. His soul still craves. What is the sign? Sin does not satisfy. You know, they teach them in the Navy that if you fall overboard into the ocean, don't drink the seawater. Even if you're adrift out there, it'll make you more thirsty. Sin is like that. It's enticing, but it does not truly satisfy the soul. Only the living water truly satisfies, as Jesus said in John 4 and John 7. Back to the theme of drunkenness. Verse 9 says, you're going to be drunk, but not with wine. They're going to be drunk with sin and also drunk with the wrath of God. I wish I had time to look at verse 10. The Lord has poured out on you the sleep, the spirit of deep sleep has closed your eyes, he has covered your heads. Recently, I bought a, bought a two-volume set, very detailed study of what the Bible says about reprobation and the hardening that God sends upon the heart of those that he hasn't chosen. That's a, that's a tough subject, but it's in the book of Romans chapter 9 and many others. I have a couple of chapters in my book on that. And these are one of the verses here where God 
uh, he's poured out on them this spirit of deep sleep. He's closed their eyes. He has let their hearts be hardened so that he wouldn't save them. But these are ones that he has not chosen and they deserve this punishment. It's punishment before the judgment day. Verses 11 to 13 were alluded to when Jesus rebuked the Pharisees. And then verse 15, again, some herd medicine. It says, woe to those that seek deep, uh, seek deep to hide their counsel far from the Lord and their works are in the dark. And they say, who sees us? Who knows us? People think that God doesn't see their sin, but God does. God sees in the dark and God sees within the heart. Lastly, chapter 30, we'll skim over this very quickly. Verse 1, it says, What are the rebellious children, like prodigal children? They take counsel, but not for me. Devise plans, but not for me. That they may add sin to sin. Sin multiplies. It says in the New Testament, sinners will go from bad to worse. Left to themselves, like the law of entropy, things fall into disorder. They get worse. They add sin to sin. Sin multiplies more than rabbits. And so people turn to other things. Verses 2 to 7, they turn to Egypt, but in vain. Lost sinners turn to anything today except to God. Verse 9, they're like disobedient, spoiled children. And that's what Israel was. God blessed them, but they misused it. And they thought they were above God's rebuke. They were like prodigal children. Verse 10, sinners didn't, didn't want the rebukes of faithful prophets like Isaiah. They wanted ones that will preach peace. Peace, peace, where there is no peace. God says there's no peace for the wicked. People today don't want to hear old-fashioned fire and brimstone preaching. They want to feel good. They want their sin to be justified. LGBT, drug use, yeah, what's wrong with that? They don't want preachers and Christians saying that's sin. Let's conclude very quickly. It says in verse 18, the Lord is a God of justice. He's got his day of justice coming. And he calls for repentance, verse 22. But the chapter ends with a very severe warning, not just of the desolation of the earth at the second coming, but look at the last verse. Verse 33, Tophet. It was established of old, yea, for the king it is prepared. What's Tophet? Another word for Gehenna, that garbage dump where the fires was always burning, and Jesus said, that's going to be what hell is like. Topheth. It says it's made ready for the king, the high and the mighty, as well as for Satan, the evil king. And God has made it deep and large. Its pyre is fire with much wood. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of brimstone, kindles it. Brethren, we need to warn people. Hell is already waiting. And it says it's deep and wide. There's another verse that says it's opened its mouth towards you like a, like a shark waiting to devour people. So that ends our study tonight of the warnings of doom. But wherever God warns, there's still the promise of hope when people repent. Let's pray. Father, we've skimmed over these chapters and hit some of the key verses Thank you for the promises that help us also to tremble at those warnings and help us to warn others as well as to offer them peace, rest, and salvation. Through Christ our Savior, amen.